We're going to talk about the book of Hebrews and the New Covenant, and we're particularly going to talk about uh, some stuff that we can see in the first chapter. So I, had dove, I dove into this last week and said I was excited about some stuff, about the New Covenant. And, uh, and I love it that, that I can be excited, and I love it that other people can go, why are you so excited about that? And, and that's, that's a good thing. So I'm excited about all of us together exploring the vast and beautiful territory opened up by the New Covenant. Now, that's a pretty prosaic kind of description of a doctrine. <laughs> but I, I really do want to let you know that the, it's way more than a doctrine in my heart. And I, the excitement's real. Because I keep finding stuff being peeled off of it that's just stunning. And um, we cooked some artichokes the other day. And we didn't eat them for a while, so they were nice and, and bunched up tight when we finally heated them up and ate them last night. But it was, it's like that. It's you peel it down, and then there's that little morsel, you know, and you peel it down. And uh, so anyway, that's, that's where my heart is on the, on the New Covenant. I'm also excited about this. I'm excited about the glorious light that it sheds on ancient revelations. And, and um, I'm, I'm excited to talk about that tonight because I know that I've got friends that would like me to talk. I'd like to understand where my head and my heart is. So here's what I mean by that. We're going to be looking at uh, just some connections in Hebrews chapter 1 and possibly into chapter 2. And the very first rattle out of the box, it starts with, uh, in times past, in various ways, through the prophets, uh, God spoke to the fathers, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son. And I know for a fact, the way I've talked about this in the past, would make people think that I was diminishing the, the past in favor of the future. Now, I do think that there is a, a sense of superiority or fulfillment or accomplishment or revelation that Hebrews builds a case for. But uh, I'm hoping that you can kind of see my heart about this. So here's what we're going to look at tonight. Things to see from Hebrews 1 and 2. We're going to look at Jesus, the prophets, angels, creation, and you. And we're not going to get very far through it. I can tell that right away. Um, just because today was pretty, I was like all immersed in it. So on chapter 1, we're going to look at how to evaluate prophecy, how to see Jesus, how to hear God speak, how to understand angels, and how to know sin's true nature uh, and its status in us. And in chapter 2, we're going to see how our role and stature in creation is revealed as sons or daughters in Jesus as a new covenant son. So I want to read a little bit through Hebrews. If you're uh, able to see this, I have lots and lots of tabs in my Bible, which could could mean real trouble. If... <laughs> oh yeah, there we go. Sorry, Riley. <clears throat> see, I don't know if you can see that. Let's see if I can go up here close. That, there, see all those? I could preach for days with that many tabs. And those are only relevant to this, this part of the study. So I want you to follow along with me. I didn't want to try to put everything on screen because it's just too small and all that kind of stuff. So I trust that you guys have Bibles, you know how to read, that you can follow along. I'm going to read out of the New American Standard, and then I'm probably going to jump into one more translation before we're out today. So I want to start reading just a little bit in Hebrews chapter 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he made the world. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name as they. 
Now it goes on, and there's a big section about Jesus and the angels in, in comparison. It starts like this in verse 5. For to which of the angels did he say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? That's a quote from Psalms 2, chapter 7. Um, and again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. This is 2 Samuel 7, 14. It's, a it's when God's talking to David about Solomon in an interesting comparison. And when again... Uh, and when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. That's Psalms 97, 7. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels wind and his ministers flames of fire? But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness, and therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. That's in Psalms 45, 6 through 7. Then it says, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. And like a garment they will also be changed. But you are the same. This is out of Psalms 102. And your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? That's Psalms 110. Are not these angels ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Okay, so I'm going to stop there. That's chapter 1. And I'm going to read a couple of things out of David Bentley Hart's translation. Because he pays a little closer attention to the word-for-word -word literacy of the thing. And so there's just a couple of deals I want to point out to you. So back to chapter 1, verse 1. God, having of old spoken to the fathers by the prophets in many places and in many ways, at the end of these days spoke to us in a son, whom he appointed heir to all things, and through whom he made the ages. Now remember that when I read the New American Standard, it says he made the worlds. The word there is aeons, and it really does mean ages, so it embraces a time component that you don't necessarily see in, in the other translations. And then verse 3 goes on to say, who being a radiance of his glory and an impress, impress is the word that they used to make a stamp of something, so like if you put a, a, a wax seal on something and you use your seal, what's left is what's called the impress. And it carries whatever information the seal was designed to carry. Uh, who being a radiance of his glory and an impress of his substance and upholding all things by the utterance of his power, took his seat at the right hand of the majesty in the places on high once he had accomplished a purification for sins. Becoming as far superior to the angels as the name he has inherited surpasses theirs in distinction. For to which angel? And then he goes on. And the rest of the translation is pretty much the same because it's referring to the same Psalms. So what I want, I, I want to see and start talking about here, because I, I, I posited that there's a possibility that an understanding of the book of Hebrews in light of the New Covenant can be a key to understand a lot of other things in Scripture. And then what I said earlier that I was excited about is that I don't believe that this diminishes anything. I believe that it opens up light to everything. So let me give you a couple of examples that have just come across my life lately. Um, recently, we went through Passover season, and uh, there was all the annual conflict over Passover versus Easter and pagan versus Jewish and all the kinds of stuff there. But in the middle of it, I, I actually got a real treat. I was watching uh, Gil and Adina's service and Darla. What's Darla's last name? You know? Darla. Darla. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she was she was sharing about the four cups, 
And I haven't completely processed that yet, but it was obvious that that was wonderful. I mean, it was obvious it was wonderful. And so as I'm reading the first few verses in Hebrews, what I realize is this. It is a fact that, that uh, the communication that God spoke to the prophets of old, and it's a fact that he spoke uh, to Moses, he, he spoke to the people of Israel, but it's also a fact that those were not always the crystal clarity because they produced a significant amount of different ways to follow. And even the scholars, when they were going back and, and, and reworking the, the, the commandments and the claims through Deuteronomy and First and Second Chronicles, you could tell they were struggling to get the exact precision out of those things. And then uh, Paul says in, in Corinthians, Second Corinthians, he says that even today, when Moses is read, there's a veil over somebody's head or, or over somebody's face. But that when Jesus is there, the veil is lifted. Now, one of the aspects of the crucifixion of Jesus that is so stunning to me is, is the, uh, and I believe it's literal, tearing of that veil when Jesus died. And the veil served a purpose, but it was a purpose that over the years it seems like got co-opted by the priest and the priesthood and the religious nature of things. And it became more and more and more and more a barrier to the people connecting with the glory of God and the glory of God connecting with people. And so I think there's a huge, not just a symbol, but a, a huge reality there. And as we go forward in Hebrews, it talks a little bit about the new veil of, of the body of Jesus. But I reflect back on what it says in Corinthians that there's a, there's a kind of a, a valance over, a veil over, a darkness over, where we see things in a mirror dimly until, until the face of Jesus somehow illuminates that. And so what I, what I realized and what I enjoyed listening to, uh, was I don't fully understand, because I've not been exposed to it until just this one time, I don't fully understand the four cups, uh, but the richness that those cups added to communion and the Easter celebration was stunning. Now, let's reverse it around. The light of Jesus is what opens those cups up because they're speaking of future until, until they're shined on by his light. And so I know when I was first thinking about this and, and maybe even teaching a little bit, it sounded like I was trying to say that there's a, there's a doing away with. Now, we're going to have to deal with that in Hebrews chapter 8 because it talks about a kind of obsolescence and a kind of replacement. But... This doesn't say that. This says that the things that the prophets said of old, God has now spoken through Jesus. And the understanding that we're going to have as we see Jesus, as we look to Jesus, is going to be opened up. It's spectacular. And the new covenant is really, in my opinion, designed to house this glory and to catch it all up into one, one actionable, interactionable type of thing. Um, a lot of the a lot of the prophecies. Well, like if you go through here and read the the ones that are in this is first chapter, there was one that that uh, was spoken of about Solomon to David as a justification for the uniqueness of Jesus in relationship to angels and the hierarchy of his rule. And so, by just simply going slowly through the first chapter of Hebrews 
And looking at those uh, testimonies and the scriptures that were pulled out of there, first of all, it would drive you crazy if you were like a fundamentalist biblical interpreter because they didn't use the, they didn't use those prophecies the way we are normally would be taught to use them, like in Bible college or something like that. What they did is they were, is the writer of Hebrews was engaged with the Holy Spirit in a spectacular way, understanding that when the whole life of Solomon was laid before David as a fulfillment of the promise and covenant that God made with David, that ultimately the one sitting on the throne of David that was promised forever is Jesus. And so now you can look at Solomon, and, and uh, I've, had a, I've had a beef with what's been going on with the COVID virus about everybody going back to the dedication of Solomon's temple to try to find a, a, a methodology to get God to be on our side. Because the whole message of Solomon it's not that Solomon was the greatest guy in the world and that he didn't have a million girlfriends. The message of Solomon was that God is faithful to a promise that he made through Abraham that carried through to David about having a seed, about having somebody on the throne. And this, Hebrews, articulates that and sets it within the context of the sacrifice that's once for all done by Jesus that accomplished the cleansing of conscience, not just the cleansing or the forbearance and stuff of sin. So I, I get excited about it because when I was listening uh, to the thing about the four cups and trying to absorb it and think about it and participate in it while she was doing it, it was obvious to me, wow, there's a lot here. There's a lot here. Now, I've been a big component that uh, a kind of Baptist-like symbol communion was not the point of what was going on ever, you know. But but I can see how the past is being pulled into the present, and light is being shined on it. Clarity is being given because in the past, God had to speak various ways and so on. Okay, here's another example. Abraham was a pagan that came out of the Ur of the Chaldees. There was no... There's no way to talk about him then. He was a guy that was able to hear the voice of the Lord, but he didn't have a religious structure. On, on the, on the uh, 1 to 10 scale of, of, of having clarity about his faith, he was at 1 or 2 at the most. Oh, God's speaking, and I'm going to go. So God accommodated with, with a covenant and with a request. The covenant was the kind of covenants that were going on around him in his culture, and God was more than willing to work within that, and it involved the animals. And he, but God stepped in and brought both halves of that covenant together, not under an obligation to Abraham, but under a gift to Abraham. Okay, so that was the first change. I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to be with you. Not I'm going to be with you if you do all these things properly. All right, the next big huge event in Abraham's life, and keep in mind that Abraham... He was making progress on his spirituality and his spiritual clarity. But he ended up uh, he ended up lying about his wife just to protect himself, you know, selling her off, doing all kinds of crazy things. But nevertheless, God walked by toward the you know latter parts of Abraham's life and said, Shall we do this thing without consulting with our friend Abraham? So God was pushing this relationship. Okay, so here's the, the deal, and you guys know where I'm going. Out of nowhere. Seemingly contrary to the promise that, uh, you know, you're going to have heirs, they're, they're going to be like sands on the sea and they're going to come through Isaac. Um, go and offer your son Isaac, your only son. Sacrifice him to me. All right? Now, Abraham, I think, it was a pretty cool guy. And what he said was, uh, according to Scripture, is I know God's even able to raise the dead. But here's what was really going on. A picture 
of the resurrection and the the, uh, substitution, the gift of Jesus for us was being set in motion that would carry throughout history with Abraham. And what, but, but the immediate lesson was, was a, a bit, a bit smaller, a bit narrower, but very powerful because Abraham and Isaac climbed the mountain with a vision of God as like the other gods that he knew that uh, the ultimate thing we can do is sacrifice and the ultimate thing we can sacrifice is our child. But when he got through that whole process, he says, wow, you're the God who provides, not the God who takes. And so this was a huge foundational incremental lesson moving forward, that, that the God of Abraham was different than the rest of the gods around him. And that began to sow seeds in, 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 and so you can trace a lot of that, but a lot of the detail of that, you, you could tell, couldn't be grasped as fully as it can in light of Jesus until Jesus came. And so that's, that's what I mean. And, and, and so prophecy. So I've got a bunch of pastor friends and everybody I know has got a good heart about this. Pretty much, pretty much everybody. I don't always have a good heart about it, but pretty much everybody has a good heart about it. And it's not that we're just, you know, we want the land to be healed. We want good things to happen. But when we, when we appeal back, we, we lose the clarity of the, of the, of the issues because we turn our hearts away from Jesus. Like I was at a prayer meeting this week and it was good, good prayer meeting, but it started out with a prayer. Uh, and I knew this was going to be interesting, but it started out with a prayer that was, uh, the guy said, I've just been studying a lot out of second Kings and I, and, and so I knew where it was going. And, and he opened the prayer up by saying, Lord, when you send a plague on our land, like you have now, you do so to get to the heart of men. Now that was, he had worked that out to be as positive a thing in his mind as it could be, that you're, you're trying to get to the hearts of men. Um, personally, I don't believe that it's, it's right to lay the sending of this plague of COVID-19 at the feet of God. I don't believe so. And people can debate about it, but, um, anyhow. So I'm listening, and, and the Lord was being good to me because I have gotten kind of upset a couple times in the past couple months over that because it just seems like it paints a hideous picture of God. Uh, and the one I see of God is walking in the midst of it with us, carrying healing, releasing it, releasing comfort, releasing all this stuff. So anyway, by the end of the thing, though, there was a chance to pray about, and the Lord had engineered it, you could tell, just listening to various people's prayers. And there wasn't tons of enthusiasm supporting that one. But there was a chance to pray, Father, I ask for a revival, a refreshing of the vision of Jesus. Because Jesus, you said, when we've seen you, we've seen the Father. And there's a hundred gods in our country and around the world through this. A hundred different images, a hundred different hopes. Everybody's got their own version. And, you know, Jesus said to Philip, have I been with you so long that you don't know that when you've seen me, you've seen the Father? So this is what I mean by the clarity that I believe Hebrews alludes to, talks to, and exposes. And it's not just about Jesus. It's not just about Jesus. Uh, in the rest of chapter 1, we're going to get into the idea where there's some clarity there about angels and what their role is and what their purpose is in the New Covenant. And I know I, for one, have neglected angels for much of my life. And I remember when 
uh, who's it? Uh, Carlos Anacondia. Um, he was asked a question by Bill Johnson or somebody, and uh, it was, why don't we see more activity of angels in the United States? He says, because you don't invite them in, because you don't think about them. You don't make room for them. And uh, that really struck me, and I started thinking about that, and, and it's true. So, but, but where, where do we come to a knowledge of what angels are here for? if not from the Scripture. Because, uh, you know, a lot of the roles that they played were depicted as destroying the firstborn. <laughs> and so that was one reason why I didn't want a bunch of angels running around, because I like Laurel, and I was planning on keeping her for a while. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm being a little facetious, but the point is, there's clarity through Christ that can now be accessed and released in this covenant we're in. And if you think about it, some of the reasons are because God's already put his law in our hearts and written in our minds. So there's an internal governance that won't get us in trouble the way it got Balaam in trouble. It won't get us in trouble the way some of the other prophets. Uh, you know, like I read Hosea as a part of this whole thing, and that was one of the beautiful things that was prayed that kind of turned the whole prayer meeting around the other day. And it was beautiful. It was really powerful. But uh, think about all of that anxiety and, and, and turmoil at the beginning when you're not my people and you're not loved and this and that and your kids are going to be named ugly things. And the, in the end, the persistent character of the Father is revealed because he says, I will woo you and I will draw you back and I will set before you this place. And so how do we distinguish between the God who, as we read through the breadth of Scripture, seems to be the one that brings the calamity and then the one that delivers from the calamity? Well, I think the way we sort it out is by looking at Jesus because he's the one that helps us see the Father. Another thing Jesus said in John chapter 14 is not just that when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, these words of mine, it's the Father abiding in me that is doing his work. What? His work through his Words, through Jesus' words. So when you hear Jesus' words, you have an ironclad guarantee that you know the Father is working with what Jesus is saying. They come from that. Okay, so like one of my favorite illustrations of that, and then I'm going to go back to Hebrews and show you how I see it in there. One of my favorite illustrations of that is the Ten Commandments makes it pretty plain adultery is a bummer. <laughs> Don't do it. It's a sin right? It's the kind of thing that gets a nation sent to exile. Matter of fact, it was the thing, fundamentally, that got the nation sent to exile, because adultery was equated with idolatry, and Egypt, I mean, Israel was warned, don't go after these other gods. They did it. They substituted that stuff, and it was the problem that turned the tables against the plan of, of uh, deliverance right there at the base of Sinai when they made that golden calf. So adultery is a bummer. What does God think about adultery? Well, obviously, he hates it. He hates the destruction it brings, and he hates the sin that it is. But how does God treat an adulteress? Or how would he treat an adulterer? We see that in the Gospels, when that woman caught in adultery was brought before Jesus in the temple. And so, how do we reconcile these two things? Is God a, a, does God look lightly upon adultery? No. God looks highly upon people and redemption.
and opportunity. And mercy triumphs over judgment. Not as a rule, but as it flows out of the heart of God when we really get a chance to see and know the heart of God through Jesus. So let me read this again, and I'll show you where I think some of these things are pretty special and coming from. God, having of old spoken to the Father by the prophets in many places and in many ways, at the end of these days spoke to us in a son. Now, um, the New American Standard, which I normally use, I, it, it stumbled, and its translator stumbled over this verse a little bit in two places. They said, in his son, his is not in there. There's, there's not that kind of article there. It literally is, is an awkward thing to translate because it means he spoke to us in son. And that's why I talked about sonese as a language, to try to give us some kind of thing. These guys use the indirect article. He spoke to us in a son. But what it means is he's not just Jesus' rhema words coming out that define what's going on. It's Jesus' life. It's Jesus saying to, to Philip, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And when you have heard me speak, it's the Father, not just the Father, the Father abiding in me, doing his work. So when Jesus said to that woman, well, when Jesus said to the guy standing around her, okay, he was without sin, cast first stone. That was the work of the Father manifesting in the words of Jesus. But even more, and so it was when he was riding on the sand, which I don't know what it is, and I have no reason to try to speculate. I know a lot of guys doing this. Cool, I get it. But the next thing is the more spectacular thing. One by one, they drop the stones, and they all leave. And Jesus looks at her and engages her in the awareness of her own redemption and her own value, which she was never privy to while she was committing adultery. While she was, And, and, and I have tremendous mercy. God knows what that culture was like. And she was brought before Jesus by a crowd of men. But here's Jesus' response to her. But more than that, think of this. This is the Father abiding in Jesus, at home in Jesus. They didn't have a conversation after this where the Father said, uh, Son, I didn't want to you know, embarrass you publicly, but you know adultery's wrong, right? <laughs> That's not how it works. He's in Christ visibly and audibly being seen and heard. And so Jesus said, where are your accusers? Well, there are none, Lord. And then he said this, neither do I condemn you. Wow. That's the same God that said, let there be light. That's the same God that said, let the earth bring forth plants and, and animals after their kind. The same logos, the same speaking, the same word said that neither do I condemn you. And it's the same father who said, honey, go and sin no more. Now, if, if those words had the same power that, that when he said, let there be light, I'm betting that gal had an awesome life after that. I'm betting that wasn't just a one-day reprieve, and then she slipped right back into it. I'm betting there was an empowerment because it was the, the, the Father abiding in Jesus, being heard and seen by his work. All right, now... 
where do I see that in here? Look at this. Okay, so this isn't just that, that God decided to sort of narrow his communication options. God, having of old spoken to the Father by the prophets in many places, many ways, at the end of these days spoke to us in a son. And then he qualifies who the son is, whom he appointed heir to all things. So the scope of the new covenant vision of Jesus shedding light on the old revelations, be they from Genesis or uh, through the various other covenants or whatever, is huge from the start. Jesus is the heir of all things. There's nothing that he's not going to inherit that exists and that persists. And there's even more about that as we keep going on. And through whom he made the ages. That means he made the age that, that was wrapped around creation. He made the age that was wrapped around the judgment of, of Noah and of the flood. He made the age of Abraham's awakening to him and all those little lessons about you can trust me. He revealed his, his love to Abraham by giving that king a dream. Think about that. He reached out. It wasn't just exclusively covering Abraham. And uh, so anyway, Jesus made the ages and he makes this age and he makes the age to come. So when, when we hear the Father, when we hear the Father's works manifesting through the life and the voice of Jesus, these are eternal things that we're watching and listening to. Not things that are destined to pass away. Not things that were, were destined to pass away in a purely practical way and that they, they, they could not, you know, it says a little bit later in the book of Hebrews, the blood of bulls and goats could not cleanse the conscience. But he can because it's the Father abiding in Him when we hear those words. Paul says that, uh, you know, how, how do we believe uh, if we don't hear? You know, the Word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's, it's the Word of Jesus, the Word of the Gospel. It's the Word of this covenant. And, and the other thing I, that I want to get across as we go through Hebrews is the Gospel is a bigger deal than you think. The Gospel is not just a story to get you saved. The gospel is the revelation of the true and accurate heart of the Father released through the Son. His life, His incarnation, His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, His, his rule into the ages. It's a lot bigger than just uh, a formula for getting your sins forgiven and, and, and saved. And so Hebrews is going to point that to us because it's going to walk us right through all of this. So like right here, it's focusing on the fact that at the culmination of the ages, or what does it say? In the, at the end of these days, he spoke to us in a son. That's not demeaning the prophetic words. That's completing them. It's fulfilling them. It's providing the color in the sketch that they are. It's providing the dimension in the two-dimensional look that they were. And without, without the life in them, the life that really didn't just shadow something, and it didn't just push something forward, without the life that really had the ability to, to, to be us and to change us, that's the best that they could do, and it was spectacular. I mean, it separated the nation of Israel from all the pagan nations around. It provided hope and promise for anyone that would be willing to see their righteousness and their holiness. And it painted a picture that we could look back on. Remember what it says later in Hebrews? It says in uh, chapter 11 at the end, it says that all of these 
talking about the most spectacular testimonies of faith and faithfulness and sacrifice and martyrdom and belief and everything, says that all of these did not receive the promise because God had reserved something better for them with us. Now, we are huge. Okay, so here's, here's another way. If we can understand that one section, which I haven't got to yet, in Hebrews 11, you can go back and read the parable about the workers at various points in the day with brand new understanding. Because it's a lot more than just an issue of fairness or unfairness. It's the fact that God is drawing us to a day called that day. And we're part of it right now. We're part of it. And so, for instance, like we're going to have an ascension at the end of church here in just a bit. And, um, or into my teaching. And there's a, there's a ton of legitimate biblical reasons to have an ascension. But one of them, one of them, is to realize that we are being called into the completion of some of these things. Why is it okay for us to say, uh, Lord, we, we welcome Abraham or Enoch or Isaac or Ruth? It's because all of those are engaged in our lives. Not because we're just like the favorite little snotty-nosed kids in the end somehow. It's because we are engaged in this application, this final application of the purposes in the heart and the love of God. And I think we're going to see that as we go on. Let me keep going. Just, there's a couple other parallels I want to show you. So who being the radiance of his glory and the impress of his substance and upholding all things by the utterance of his power, took his seat at the right hand of majesty in the places on high once he had accomplished the purification for sin. All right, stop there. Paul teaches that we are seated in heavenly places in Christ at the right hand of the Father, in Christ. The truth of the matter is, those are just doctrines if you don't have an understanding of, of a place where they can walk out their, their existence in full glory, in reality. A little bit later, and I, there's no possible way I can get to it today, so I'll have to do it next week. But a little bit later, we get down where it says that, that I'll read it to you though, that because the sons, the children, shared in flesh and blood, he too had to do that himself. That's why when the blood that comes from Jesus' body is sprinkled in that tabernacle in heaven not made with men, it changes everything. Because he took, it changed everything for us. He took us into himself. Now, when Paul says, don't you know that when you're buried in baptism, you are united with him in his death? So you will be united with him in his resurrection. Again, the best that can be is a doctrine if there's not some thread of substance through it, some thread of life. And, and this is why I'm like all excited about the new covenant. Because the new covenant is the thing that merges the incarnate life of Jesus with the eternal purposes of God and all of the displays and all of the shadows and all of the glory. I mean, and, and Hebrews goes on and says, hey, there's a glory when this stuff was spoken. You can't ignore it. You can't ignore it when the angel spoke these things. You can't ignore it when Moses said, came down off the mountain and said, and God said, make everything about this according to the pattern. But the making of it all according to the pattern was not the end of the revelation. This is the end of the revelation. Not to diminish that, but to go, wow, I understood why those cherubim were poised the way they were. I understand now why that uh, the caparet was built the way it was because that was Jesus. 
that was Jesus. So then you look at, at, at things that have been turned into such an obscure doctrine like the uh, idea of propitiation, borrowing from a bunch of Greek ideas. No, no. That gold thing was inspired by the Spirit and those craftsmen to point to Jesus as surely as after David committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband, that she was eventually able to have a son that depicted the redemption of all mankind, the fulfillment of you will always have somebody sitting on the throne. In spite of Solomon having a wandering eye, in spite of Solomon uh, you know, giving in to the pressure of being a king of a nation that, that had all kinds of power. So this is where, where, where that stuff comes together. Let me read a little bit further, and then I'm going to close out and jump over to the ascension stuff. Uh, so he reads through, and I'm just going to commend you to read the rest of chapter 1 because it has to do with uh, being very clear about distinguishing that Jesus wasn't just an angel that was going to rule. Okay, there's, there's tons more in there, and I'm probably not smart enough to get to it. But let's let's keep going a little bit. So in chapter two, uh, it says, "Therefore, it is needful for us to heed more abundantly the things that we have heard, so that we might not drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just requital." How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? One that having received a uh, commencement declared by the Lord was confirmed for us by those who heard it. God also bearing witness along with him with signs and wonders and by various deeds of power and impartations of the Holy Spirit in accordance with his will. Okay. Um, There's a passage of scripture in Matthew. I got on my notes here. Let's see if I can read it. In Matthew 17, 1 through 5. You guys know that? Do you recognize the reference? It's the Mount of Transfiguration. Let me just read this and show you how Hebrews adds horsepower to stories that happen. Okay, this is a New Testament story, of course. Six days later, this is Matthew uh, uh, 17.1. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. And his garment became as white as light, and behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. But notice that there's another phrase, listen to him. Back here in Hebrews, um, I'll go back to the memory stand for a second. Um, it says there, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed by us and by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and various miracles. So God spoke to them and, and he said, not only is this my beloved son, in other words, I'm speaking through him now. Listen to him. That's the admonition. So I think the admonition that, that, and this is what I see every time I see something emerging out of here. I'm trying not to force a bunch of connection, but I'm trying to say, Jesus is the creator of the ages, everything that was made by him, for him. So as powerful as the, as the Gospel of John is, and I love the Gospel of John, that 
prologue to John where it says that nothing was made by him and all things were made for him and all this kind of stuff. Or over in Colossians where it says he's the firstborn, all this is happening. You know. This book, Hebrews, plugs this into that covenant. It's talking about chapter 8. The setup for that covenant to understand here's why Jesus is the focus. It's not to take anything away from anything. It is to bring light to the point that God was looking at forever. So now you read in, in Ephesians where it says that uh, you know, before the foundation of the world or at the beginning, God predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. Well, now there's a meaning to this. You can see why. Because he always had this in mind. Ever since, ever since the, the first covering of Adam, ever since the redemption of people through the flood, ever since Abraham's promise to have a seed. So now you jump to Romans, and, 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 and people debate all the time, well, is it seed or seeds, you know, and all this kind of stuff. This answers those questions. It answers them not just doctrinally, though. It answers them relationally. And, and then when you get to the end of that criteria, uh, in chapter 8, and God says, the reason I can do this is because I'm going to meet your transgressions with mercy, and I'm going to forgive your sins, or I'm going to not remember your sins ever again. No way. That's the only condition in which everything that God has for all of us, including... Jephthah, Gideon, Samson, Barak, and all those that are listed, and all their exploits, and all their faith, and all their feats that are listed in Hebrews 11, that all comes together through us. And then if you note, we'll get there eventually, it jumps to 12, and then it says, we have this great cloud of witnesses around us. So we're not coming to a mountain that just projected fear, and that created that kind of confusion. We're coming to the Souls of men made perfect. That's why I'm so excited about ascension. And I know if you're not, if you're not uh, familiar with it, when you first get into it, it seems like, well, is this okay? Is this legal? Do we really have permission to do this? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because all of heaven has been drawn into this relationship that is characterized in this covenant. That it's the, the government allows it, encourages it, created the opportunity to interface with God. It's not some uh, weird side thing that we're doing. <laughs> it's the real McCoy. It's awesome. It's wonderful. So, um, okay, where are we at? 735. That's not too bad. Let me just jump into a couple things in chapter 2. So if, if there's something to learn about Jesus in chapter 1, there is something important to learn about us in chapter 2. And I've, again, I've, I've come through teaching for decades and people are trying, you know, how many of you uh, have heard about the teaching back in the late 40s, the manifest sons of God? Okay, it, it you know, it, it was us making an effort to understand this stuff. But I never heard of anybody teaching that in the context of the New Covenant in the context of why that, that's okay. And, of course, it blew apart. It, it, was, it was terrible. I'm not saying the things that we're teaching weren't true. There's another one about the priesthood of the believers. There was a big thing, a shepherding movement, where everybody got in line with one another because they wanted all the authority to line up. Um, all of those things, for the most part, came to disaster. There were people blessed in the middle of them, but the majority of them, they fell apart bad. It's because they didn't have the security of a government that would make them work. And people tried to make the ecclesia that or the church that, 
And then they tried to, you know, line that all up with apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, which is all good and true. God does give those gifts as part of who Jesus gives us to be. But when they go bad is when they borrow from a military type of structure or they borrow from some other kind of hierarchical structure. And my big case is I want us to take the time over the next little while to understand we don't need to look somewhere else for government. We have one. Matter of fact, we have the one. We have the one that has been the focus of the ages. And the only reason that it was held at bay for a while is because the time appointed hadn't come when God himself took all of humanity into himself, when he became a man. And that's what this is all about. So let me just read it real quick. I'm going to read through the chapter one time. Therefore, it is needful for us to heed more abundantly. Oh, I already read that. For not for angels did he subordinate the world that is coming in, about which we are speaking. And at some point, a certain person has borne solemn witness, saying, and this is in Psalms 8, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you watch over him? You made him something just a little less of angels, and you've crowned him with glory and honor. You've set everything in order under his feet. For in this subordination of all things, he left nothing not ordered under him. But at present, we do not see all things under him. Now, let me tell you something about what's being taught here. And people have tried to teach around it because they're afraid of what the, it really says. If you go back and you read that psalm, that psalm wasn't just speaking exclusively about Jesus. He was speaking about you and I. Why, with everything that's going on, when I consider the, the heavens, the works of your hand, the wonder, the stars above, why do you consider man? It's not just a question that was asked in psalms. It's probably a question that's been asked by the Elohim, the angels, and all this kind of stuff. Like, what is up with these hunks of dirt? <laughs> Seriously. Why do you value them so much? Why are you so focused on them? I do think that the angels finally began to understand when Jesus was coming into the world. And they, go, they started talking about it declaring about it, singing about it. But whether they did or not, and whether they do or not, man's purpose was clearly defined by Jesus. And so it, it, it goes on and it says, um, you made him something a little less than angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. You set everything in order under his feet. This reaches all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 when God was talking about man having dominion and extending life and doing this. It's why there have been kings. It's why Israel was a nation. It's why the Gentiles had sown in them the ability to respond like Cornelius did to the Spirit. But at present, we do not yet see all these things ordered under him, but we see Jesus, who was made just a little less than angels, having been crowned with glory and honor on account of suffering death, so that by God's grace he might taste of death on behalf of everyone. Now, this is what got me riled up and felt like people were making a very, very, very unprofitable trade. When rather than looking at Jesus and beginning to declare his name while there's a pandemic sweeping across, threatening the lives of lots of people, they were looking back. Let's look at Jesus. If Jesus wants to draw us back into that dedication, back into the worship of that temple, back into the redemption of those options, great. But let's start looking at Jesus. Let's start there. Because he's why 
Solomon was who Solomon was. He's why that temple had the ability to say, if you go out because of your sin and get taken captive by people, if you'll pray, I'll answer. Jesus is why that was. Not something unique with God and Solomon. At the very best, Solomon was a, was a, uh, a billboard, radiant, glorious, loved by God, significant as all get-outs, pointing to Jesus. And, and so I just want us, we live on this side of that. We live on this side of Hebrews chapter 11. And so I want us to be that way. Uh, look at what it says here too. So that by God's grace, he might taste of death on behalf of everyone. Just let that sit and believe that. You know, questions when people start debating about, uh, you know, uh, universalism or uh, reconciliation of all things. You know, let's take sides with God before we form our doctrine. Let's let the scripture speak and have its voice. Let's let Jesus speak and have its voice. And some would say, well, yeah, he talks a lot about hell, he talks about this. That's not my point. My point is, let's not make doctrines that don't take God into account. And let's not think we can fully take God into account without looking at Jesus. The one who his words are an actual manifestation of the abiding Father doing his work. So we're going to keep going. But we see Jesus made a little less uh, honor and count suffering death so that by God's grace he might taste the death on behalf of everybody. For it was fitting for him on account of whom all things are and by whom all things are to perfect through suffering the originator of their salvation who has led many sons to glory. For both he who makes holy and they, those who are made holy all come from one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers in the midst of the assembly. I will hear you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, see, I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch, therefore, as the children have blood and flesh in common, he too shared in these same things, so that by death he might render the one holding the power of death, that is, the slanderer, ineffectual and might liberate those who had all their lives been bound in slavery by fear of death. All right, so I'm going to stop there. But on a practical level, that's what irritated me when we were trying to sort out the appropriate response to the threat and the fear of death that's sweeping across the world and across our nation. And we were turning elsewhere than the one who took death on for all of us with the express purpose of making ineffectual the slanderer, the accuser, the liar, the devil, who was behind trying to subjugate people through the fear of death. And we're still in the middle of it right now. And and people that don't think about Jesus, no, no, and I'm not just picking on Christian people who want to pray something from Solomon's dedication. I'm talking about me, you, anybody, really. But especially think about uh, some of our political leaders that, as, as they speak more frequently, you begin to see a little bit about their heart. And, and they're willing to throw away everything for fear of death. It has the power to, to, to lie, to, to just destroy them. So, anyway. In summary, Jesus is a huge deal. And apart from him, you cannot understand history or future. And we are a big deal, big enough that his manifest expression of the Father 
came custom designed to fully manifest you and me. So that we could look at him. And now when Paul says, so we behold as in a mirror, uh, the, the glory of the Lord, you know, from glory to glory, this gives us some understanding. Jesus was dropped into this world so that we would be able to look at him and in seeing him, see ourselves. And John confirmed it. He says, Beloved, it does not yet appear what we shall be, but when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. That's how you know you. That's how you know me. And that's what we're trying to do. So the new covenant is built for that revelation. It's built to bring light and truth from the past. It's built to provide assurance in the future, and it's built to focus our attention on Jesus. Amen? That's my best shot for one and two. Father, I thank you. I pray that as we gather together in small groups, coming up here real quickly, that, uh, that you'll lead us where you want us to go, that you'll show us Jesus in a way you want us to see him, that you'll tack on any other thing, because everything that you would ever want us to see and know, Jesus is capable of revealing your vision, your will, and your purpose for it. So Lord, I thank you. I thank you for that. And uh, bless these guys as they consider this. Lord, I pray, I do pray, that you would expand our understanding of, but more importantly, our confidence in the fact that we are engaged in a covenant appointed in time that is designed to bring everything to the light and everything to fulfillment that we've ever seen in Scripture and throughout history. Every hope that we have of the future. Lord, I really believe that such that some, so many of the goofy, futurist, end-time theologies come because we're not thinking about who you are and who you are revealed to be in Jesus in the New Covenant. Because if we were, a lot of those things would slip out of our minds and never return. So, Father... Elevate this relationship that the new covenant produces between you and us in our hearts and let us enjoy it. In Jesus' name, amen.